Revelation uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 7. Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together as we're finding our way there. Just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be finishing our study of, uh, 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 of Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah this evening, 6 o'clock, each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the, Jesus uh, uh, dictating, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for rain, we thank you for snowpack, we thank you for what the forecasters tell us is coming. And water is life, and you know that more than we do. And we're grateful for the storm that's coming in. We pray that in your grace there would be much rain and much snow and much water to come forth from it. Lord, we also pray for all of our fellow citizens and and um, all of the people impacted so um, massively by this tornado that cut across so many states and, and meted out so much devastation uh, upon Kentucky. And we see the pictures of just piles and piles of cars and buildings and the loss of life and to realize that all of that is not just material buildings and churches gone and homes gone and cars gone, but all of it is tied to a human being who's been greatly impacted by this, to say nothing of those who have lost loved ones in this. And so the consequences of the fall remain with us, the creation, it continues to groan, but we're glad that we have you to turn to who is greater than all of that, and we pray that you would pour the greatness of your power and your wisdom and your love and your favor and your goodness upon every official, upon every citizen, upon every human being that's trying to figure things out right now in the middle of that devastation. Thank you that you're bigger than all of the problems that we face. Thank you that you work things together for good, even things we could not imagine that that could happen. We commit this to you, Lord. We pray for our time in your word today that you would, Jesus, give us ears to hear what you and your spirit speak to the church. We pray that you would give us a fresh 
ability to absorb your letter to the church at Philadelphia. Free us, Lord, from the curse of familiarity and let us embrace this and allow it to impact us. Uh, some of us who've uh, read it and studied it so many times in a fresh and a new way. And we pray and we ask for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And coming to the sixth of the seven of Jesus' seven letters to uh, the churches in Revelation, I think it's good to be reminded of the fact that in two of these churches, the letters that Jesus wrote, he wrote to Thyatira, he also wrote to Sardis, and in each of those letters, try as he might, he couldn't say anything to commend them for or to encourage them in. The entire letter was one of correction and uh, exhortation. But there are also two letters among the seven in which there is no correction at all. It is all encouragement. And those letters are, uh, that uh, he uh, gives us here is, uh, that we've studied past is Smyrna and then also uh, uh, the church in Philadelphia. The church, nothing good to say about him, Sardis and Laodicea, the two where he has nothing to correct, Smyrna and Philadelphia. So we immediately recognize that the church of Philadelphia is an exemplary church. It's a model church. It is a church that every church in the world uh, that exists today should be looking at that and making that the model of what we emphasize, uh, what is important to us, what we disregard, all of these things. And it is, provides us also as individual Christians with something that is an example for us in terms of the priorities of, of our own lives as individual Christians. Every church, every single individual Christian desires or should desire to be of the spiritual lineage of this church in, in Philadelphia. The church was not located in Pennsylvania, but it was located uh, about uh, 40 miles southwest of Sardis. Uh, very interestingly, it was a relatively small uh, city and there's a, a background to the establishing and founding of this city that allows us to fully be able to comprehend the message that Jesus gives to them. It's interesting how in each of the letters there's something local about uh, that uh, circumstance that he addresses that then the readers of the letters would, would have known immediately what he's talking about to give it life and application. And, and so it is true here related to the church in, in uh, Philadelphia. It was, uh, the city of Philadelphia was founded in 140 BC and uh, by a Greek king of the ancient kingdom of Pergamum at, a, at the time uh, by, he had the name of uh, Attellus II. And he located the cities at the border where the borders of Mysia and uh, Lydia and Pergia intersected. These were regions associated with what we know today is modern West Turkey. And he located it on one of the primary uh, trade routes of the ancient world, where the trade that went between Asia and the Middle East to Europe and from Europe to the Middle East and Asia, he planted the uh, city of Philadelphia on that particular route. 
He did so, of course, in order that it would be able to have a means of supporting itself, uh, being on a trade route, there would be wealth, there would be jobs, things that are important to the longevity of, of every city. But that was not the main reason that he founded the city of Philadelphia. He founded the city of Philadelphia there in that very strategic place in time in order that it might be a missionary city through which uh, Greek, the Greek language and Greek culture would then be spread eastward from Greece uh, into Asia, into the Middle East, and, and beyond. And the, and the city of Philadelphia was fabulously uh, successful in accomplishing exactly that goal uh, of Adelis. And uh, so when Jesus declares in this letter to the church in Philadelphia, that he has given them an open door as a missionary city for the purpose of advancing the gospel, the kingdom of God, into the world around it. Uh, he is telling them that he's given them that open door in the same way that Greek language and culture had been advanced so powerfully through the city that they, knowing uh, the history of their city, would have understood that he was declaring the same thing to them in, in the realm of, of spiritual influence. And this would have been a massive encouragement uh, to that church, and it would be to any uh, church. Uh, Philadelphia means uh, the city of brotherly love, uh, the one who loves his brother, and, it ref and, and phileo love speaks of love on an emotional plane. It ha it's to have a fond affection for. And so I suspect that the church was, uh, was characterized by a warm affection for one another, which in turn was a blessing to Jesus. As usual in verse 7, he addressed the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church. And then Jesus, again as usual, he begins his self-description in the latter part of verse 7. And he comes to this church and he declares himself as he who is holy. And he reminds this church that he is holy. And he does so not, uh, not as a rebuke, not as a correction. He's not declaring that they were unholy, but he says it as an encouragement to them to remain holy in an unholy city and an unholy place in the world. And that no matter how unpopular it might be, whatever the price that they might be paying, and whatever misunderstandings that people might have of them for being holy, for being different, uh, as the Bible calls us to be as Christians, that, uh, and the, the uh, price that we would pay in resisting the culture in order to remain holy, that it's worth it because it, it is the ability to live a life like Christ. And no life... Uh, has ever been lived that's more full and more rich than Jesus's life. No life has ever been lived that is more free than the life that, that Jesus uh, lived. Now clearly, when Jesus comes to this church and he declares and describes himself as he who is holy, it communicates to us immediately that he is not embarrassed to be holy. He's not embarrassed to be known as holy. And to be holy is to be different. It's to be different from the world around us. 
and the recognition that holiness is not something that people are embarrassed of or ashamed of in the context uh, of, of heaven. And, 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 it, and to be holy is he doesn't apologize. He doesn't wring his hands over being holy. Sorry I came into the world. Sorry I was as holy as I was when I was in, in your midst. But he was holy in his incarnation, and he is just as holy to this day. And the idea that living a holy life a Christian life uh, that is holy is somehow negatively um, representing Christianity in the world or representing Christianity in a way that the world will have nothing to uh, do with, that we've got to become like the world in order to reach the world for God. That concept is completely foreign in heaven. And it is completely foreign to Jesus himself. And having said that, it's important, I think, to also realize that Jesus is the definition of holiness. We come up with all kinds of ideas people have um, in terms of outward appearance and all through the ages of what is, represents holy uh, speech or representation of ourselves as Christians in the world and all kinds of different ideas. And then we get all confused about it. There's a, a sect known as the Sadducees in the ancient world uh, among the, the Jewish religious leaders, and they were the theological liberals, but they claimed to be holy. They claimed to be representing God. And what they did is they took all of the hard and the strict demands of Scripture for holiness that they didn't like, they felt they were too demanding, and they uh, eased the demands. They spoke around them and made them less demanding than God intended them to be. They're not a representation of holiness but neither are the legalists on the other end of the spectrum, like the Pharisees who come in, they look at a command of God that is, is given in order that we might live a life like Christ, we might live a holy life, and they decide that if God calls us to do this, then three times this must be even more holy, and so they make the Scriptures more demanding than they actually are. And that doesn't help anyone either. Jesus doesn't need help from either extreme. He is already the definition of holiness. And if we want to know as Christians, what does holiness look like, or what is faux holiness, and won't make an impact on anybody's life, and will come across as self-righteousness, and be off-putting to people, we say, no, I want to be holy, but in a genuine way. To look at the circumstance we find ourselves in life, and then go to the Gospels and find where Jesus found himself in exactly the same kind of situation, and then at, look at the passage and say, what did he do here, and what did he say here, and then do that and say that. And that will be the holy thing to do in the situation. And sometimes that may be even a very hard thing to do. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus is spending the entire three and a half years of his incarnation walking the uh, 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 north and south and east and west in the land of Israel with a lamb over his shoulders, and that's all that he did. Uh, but holiness meant rebuking the religious leaders of his day when that was necessary. Also clearing out the temple when that was necessary, when they had made it into a, a, a den of thieves and a house of merchandise. So holiness is a, is a big subject. It's a multifaceted thing. 
And, and thankfully, we're not left to define it on our own. Jesus is the embodiment of, of holiness. And of course, to live a holy life is to live a blessed life. It's to live a safe life. And how, you, you know, we, uh, uh, I have it at my house. I've got these, uh, I've got an alarm system. I've got cameras on the back doors and sliding door and on the front door. Everybody gets their picture taken when they come to my house. And everybody's looking for safety or not to have their mail stolen or their packages stolen. And we realize safety is a, it's a, at a premium within, within our, our culture because of the way the culture is degrading. But there's a, there is a safety that goes beyond a physical safety or a material safety. And that is the safety of our minds, the safety of our hearts, our emotions, the safety, uh, a spiritual uh, safety. And, uh, and, and a holy life provides that to us. One of my favorite verses related to this is Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. And Isaiah writes, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. And whoever walks on the road, that is the highway of holiness, although a fool, shall not go astray. And this path that God provides for us in His Word, a roadway, a highway, in terms of His commandments, it is a safe place in life. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be philosophical. You don't have to be talented. Uh, Isaiah says that even a fool, even a, even a person who has none of these capacities of discernment can be safe as we just walk down that highway of holiness that's described for us in the life of Jesus and then described for us in the Scriptures. And, and on that that path of holiness, there are no regrets to be found there. There's no life of condemnation to be found there. There's no guilt over having walked that, that highway or to, uh, associated with a holy life. There are no arrests that are found there, no prison sentences uh, that are found there, no sexually transmitted diseases that are found there, no addictions that are found there, and on and on and on it goes. Because it's the greatest life that a person uh, can live. And this is one of the reasons that holiness is referred to as something that is beautiful in the Scriptures. Four times holiness is spoken of in the Scriptures. I think it's four times. And it's given the same phrase, the beauty of holiness. And a holy life is a very, very beautiful life. It's a life, a beautiful life for us to live and to enjoy and however it might be esteemed by the culture, the world around us, it is viewed as a beautiful thing from the vantage point of heaven. Jesus declares as well in his self-description, he, he de describes himself as he who is true. That is, he's not only incapable of lying, which is more than saying that he doesn't lie. Not only does he not lie, he's incapable uh, of lying. But here he's saying that he is the embodiment of truth. And it speaks, of, it speaks of reality in contrast to all of the idols and all of the things that they were worshiping uh, in the ancient world and that people worship uh, even today, that He is real, that He is utterly trustworthy. 
And of course, he speaks that to them as an encouragement in the light of what they were facing. Trust me. I am utterly trustworthy in your life. And then he goes on and describes himself as he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Well, we've talked about this in the past, and what is a key? A key represents authority. When a person has a key to the lock of a door, they have absolute authority over that door and what lies beyond it. And when they open, uh, open the lock, then they can open that door, and nobody can shut that door. They can lock that door, shut that door, and no one can uh, uh, open, uh, open it. That person can go into the, into, through the door or come back out through the door uh, whenever he or she wants to. As a, a young, very young uh, elementary school uh, boy, I remember at Irene M. Snow School that the janitor and that big clump of keys he had on was very, very impressive. Now, I'd look at that just for the sheer number of them, but then you think about that guy has to know uh, where every one of those keys goes on this campus. So they were my heroes there for a while on, on all of that. And, and yet, that big group of keys gave him complete authority over every single lock on the, the entirety uh, of, of the grounds by virtue of possessing those keys. And what Jesus is saying, uh, what is, is true of a janitor at a school is true of him concerning all of creation. He has absolute authority over all of it. And when he opens something, no man individually or all of mankind put together collectively can close it. And when he closes the door, no man or all of mankind collectively can then open it. He has authority over everything, his absolute sovereign control over all things. You notice, too, that Jesus speaks of the key of David. And as is common in the book of Revelation, it's an Old Testament reference from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20. I'll read it to you. And then it shall come to pass, Isaiah writes, that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him uh, with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. And the context of that passage is during the reign of King Hezekiah, he had an unfaithful servant by the name of Shebna, who was replaced then by a godly servant by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim had the key to all of the treasures of the king. And Eliakim was in charge of, completely in charge of access uh, to the king. You could not gain entrance before the king apart from him, apart from his key, apart from his authority. And when he opened a door, it was opened. And when he closed the door, it was closed. And when Jesus, Jesus speaks of, and when the Bible speaks of the house of David, 
It represents God's plan uh, for dealing with mankind after the fall of man in the ancient Garden of Eden. Because the house of David or the lineage of David is the most important lineage in human history. Because God had promised that through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, and through Daniel, that he would bring a Messiah or a Savior into human uh, history and, and would come from that lineage of David. And Jesus is declaring that what was true of Eliakim concerning Hezekiah's kingdom, what was true of Eliakim concerning a physical kingdom is true of Jesus concerning all of heaven. He holds the key to all of the treasures of heaven, the key to access to heaven, to the, uh, access to the Father. All of it can only occur uh, through him. And it's his way of communicating to the church of Philadelphia, both then and today, communicating to them, I am in control. No matter what it looks like to you, no matter how insignificant your city feels to you or your church feels to you in that city, uh, no matter how small your power may seem to be, uh, I am in control. No matter what, how great the persecution that is being brought against you, and great persecution was being brought against them. And these were obviously people that were persecuting the church there who had friends in high places. And, and they were using those friends in high places to make things very hard for Christians in that city. And Jesus reminds the church there that you have a friend in the highest of places. One of the great descriptions, I think, in this regard is when Paul wrote his church, uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. And he describes us as Christians, before we were Christians, he describes us as being once in the world without God. And how horrible was that, to be in the world without God? And the point that he's making is that we are no longer in the world without God as Christians. It is in his control, and we have uh, friends, we have a friend, we have the triunity of God, friends in very, very uh, high places. Maybe one of us, or two of us this morning needs to be reminded of that, just to internalize this and whatever it is that you and I are facing. And for the Lord to speak, and you, we might sit here and think, I believe I'm a part of the church in Philadelphia. And even though we're a part of the church of Philadelphia, we still go through these things. There's still the persecution. There's still the slander, all of these things. And to stop and say, I'm going to internalize that about my situation right now. I'm going to receive it, that God is in control in what it is that I'm facing. Now, notice the characteristics of this exemplary church. Jesus described them in verse 8 as having a little strength. Strength comes from the Greek word dunamis. We get our word dynamic, dynamo, dynamite from it, and it speaks about power. 
The word little is micros in the original language, and it speaks of something that is very, very uh, little, very, very small, something that is the least. It's the word that was used in the Gospels, Gospel according to Luke, to describe Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And Zacchaeus was a small man in comparison to other people. In other words, he was someone that was easy to overlook uh, in, in a crowd. And so this church uh, would have been very, very easy to overlook in the ancient world, probably a small congregation numerically, and probably not made up of uh, members of the congregation that were considered by the world to be, uh, you know, uh, influential in any kind of a significant way or uh, 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 probably pretty rel- ordinary uh, as things go. But though they might have been overlooked by the world, and churches are very much overlooked by the world, and churches of Philadelphia are very much overlooked by with even within Christendom but but no matter how the world esteems uh, even how Christendom esteems a church with these characteristics and how lowly they might be esteemed uh, they're not overlooked in heaven and when he sees what he sees in the church of Philadelphia he sees just what he is looking for in order to do something wonderful And as we see in just a moment, Jesus is going to give them, and churches like them, promises that are going to make up for their little strength. He said further that they did not deny Jesus' name. They're enduring persecution, a persecution that is coming upon them by the Jews, because they're speaking about the Jewish Messiah. And they are declaring as a church, probably very much a Gentile church, though obviously with Jewish members within it as well, but they're uh, speaking authoritatively concerning Jesus and about the Messiah, uh, the fact that He is divine, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the fact that He is uh, the Christ, the fact of His uh, virgin birth. They're speaking uh, con- concerning him in, a, in an environment where there is a Jewish synagogue that considers itself to be the authority upon Messiah. And why is this group of people over here claiming to speak authoritatively on a subject that belongs uh, solely to us in, in their, uh, their minds? And so this persecution against them by this synagogue uh, uh, of Satan, as Jesus describes it, as we'll see in a moment, all of it would, that persecution would have been lifted off of them if they had simply denied what they knew to be true about Jesus. It would have been a, brought an end to all of the hassle that they were, were receiving from these within that city. But they refused to deny the truth about Jesus Christ, not, and not for any amount of money or any amount of pressure, period. They would not do it. And, and, and there, all of us know what that feels like in our lives. To make a stand, even among Christians to make a stand, related to what is just as black and white clear as it can be in the Scriptures, and to be rejected for it. To refuse to deny the truth about Him, the truth and wisdom of, of, his, uh, of his teaching. 
And when we make a stand in face of that kind of opposition, and certainly from the world, the rejection that occurs, to realize that as that happens in our families, as it happens in our school or workplace, that we are, as we stand, a part of the church of Philadelphia. He said further in verse 10, you have kept my command to persevere. So despite all of the persecution they were facing, they just kept on keeping on. They stayed faithful to him. And so Jesus gives them promises in verses 8 through 10. He promises them an open door, verse 8. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. An open door represents opportunity for ministry, uh, for the gospel, uh, opportunity for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. Uh, the open door represents the opportunity to uh, uh, exercise a spiritual influence in the world in which, uh, in which we live. And the Holy Spirit uh, described this in comparable terms through the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letter uh, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 16, verse 9, for a great and effective door, speaking of ministry, to advance the kingdom, to make Christ known, to influence the world spiritually, it's been open to me, and there are many adversaries. And so often it, it goes like that. Those two things are combined. Again, uh, the influence Attalus II commissioned the Church of Philadelphia to have for Greek culture and language. Jesus opens the door for the church there to have the same influence for the kingdom of God. And Philadelphia had already been that influence in the ancient world for Greek culture and language. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you that kind of an influence from my kingdom and for spiritual things as you saw happen in, in the physical realm. And in looking to bless this church in Philadelphia in this way, Jesus doesn't promise them money. He doesn't uh, promise them any kind of a certain size, your church is going to grow to this certain size, or he doesn't offer them any kind of fame, all of these kind of things that in our materialistic society here in the West that even creeps into the church where we look and we say that we can tend to look at a church on the basis of its wealth or its size and then determine that is a church of Philadelphia based solely upon those things. And we come to conclusions about the spirituality of a church based upon those things. They had none of those things. And when Jesus offered them an open door, it was the one thing they would have longed for. More than money, more than numbers, more than wealth, more than anything else. Because they had the spiritual maturity to look at things and say, I don't want to come to the end of my life and have been a Christian or to have led a church or been a part of a church that grew big and it grew wealthy, but it never had any influence for the kingdom of God. It never had an open door. And it's possible for that to happen. And that's the thing that makes a church wealthy. Our, day, our lives will be over one day quicker than we can even realize what in the world has happened here. 
And when that day happens for us as Christians, it won't be, I wish I'd have made another uh, $10,000. Or, you know, I, I wish I had joined this club or become a part of this thing or that. Always the longing, the looking back, and looking back with, with gratitude and a sense of accomplishment is, God entrusted me and, and, and made me influential for His kingdom in the world. That's what makes a church rich, because you can have everything else, and without that, not only does it not mean anything in the physical realm at the end of our lives, it doesn't mean anything in the spiritual realm either. And the church at Philadelphia didn't need to wait till the end of their days in their deathbed to realize Jesus is offering us the greatest thing that He could offer to us. They knew it then. And they were spiritual enough to view that as the greatest thing that Christ can offer uh, to a church or to an individual. And so in their keeping of Jesus' word, their perseverance, the fact that they didn't deny His name, this allowed Jesus to bless them in this way, to uh, promise to use them in this way. Because why would God choose to enlarge anything that claims to be Christianity and is not these things, why would He give that kind of a place influence to enlarge what is not actually Christianity? All He wanted was just something that was real, something that was accurate, and then he says, you don't have to be big, you don't have to be smart, you don't have to have tons of money, you are what I want Christians to be, you are what I want the world to think of when they think of Christianity, and I'm going to bring the greatness of my resources to bear upon you. I will give you an influence that I only give to churches like you or to individuals uh, like, like you. And without this, I mean, what, else, what does a church have? Again, as we've been talking, the famous British missionary C.T. Studd wrote, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And that's a wonderful thing again, not to know just merely at the end of my life, but to know it now and to prize this promise we can look at a promise like this, an open door, and say, well, well, what does open door mean to me? What about when I give 10 bucks and God gives me 100? Or whatever other con shenanigans that are going on today is a claim of, of representing Christianity. No, this is, this is the real treasure that Jesus is offering to this church and churches like it, Church of Philadelphia. He said to them that he would make their persecutors, verse 9, to be humbled before them and to be made to known his love uh, for them. And he speaks about those of the synagogue of Satan. He's not talking about all Jews, not at all. Jesus was a Jew, a lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, but this particular synagogue in that city uh, was very, very opposed to this Christian church. And they had really uh, put their focus on it to really hassle them. 
And uh, in, in, in part, it may very well be that Jews who had become Christians were no longer allowed to come back into the synagogue as completed Jews or as Messianic Jews. The, the door was closed to them. Or they could have been uh, the, the leaders and so forth in the synagogue could have been going to the Roman leaders and saying, hey, you know, that group down the street, those people that call themselves Christians, uh, that religion that isn't recognized by Rome, you know, uh, they're not offering that pinch of incense to Caesar every year. And then, and then getting them in that, that kind of persecution and that, that kind of unwanted light and, and difficulty. And Jesus said that he would make these that were hassling them in this way to come and worship at their feet and, and thus to make them know that Jesus loved them in this church. In other words, I will make it apparent to all of your enemies that you are my servants and that you are the objects of my love. And one day, all of the persecutors of Christians will be humbled in the same way. But we're to leave them uh, to God in, in, in that. Stay busy about God's business and, and don't lose sight of the open uh, door. This kind of thing is always going to go on. So, the biggest tragedy that a Christian can encounter or experience, the biggest tragedy that a local church can experience is to exist and not have an open door. Uh, not be given by Jesus spiritual influence into the world around it. That's the, big, that's the greatest catastrophe of all. And the second one, though very, very far down from that, is a catastrophe nonetheless. And that is to be a church or a Christian who has an open door, but loses sight of the open door. And what the devil was doing there in the church of Philadelphia, is it's a, it's a synagogue of Satan, was getting these people to ramp up the persecution, spread the lies about them, so the devil knows he can't close off that open door, because only Jesus can close doors that he opens, is to just begin to slander them so much, and to come against them in persecution so much, that they lose sight of the open door, and now just become consumed with putting out the fire and dealing with the persecution that was going on around them. And Jesus says, you leave that with me because that will take up all of your time and you won't go through the open door I'm giving to you. I remember hearing very early in my Christian life, and it served me well through the years, and that is if Satan can peg any of us as Christians or a church, as one that will run to put out every single fire that the devil starts about, uh, about us individually, then that's all we will do our entire Christian life. Because if he spots us as someone who will not entrust those things to the Lord, all he'll do is light those fires and we'll spend our entire three score and ten uh, endeavoring to, to put them out. As the old saying goes, it goes with all of that. If we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. And, and, the, and Jesus is telling them, stay focused on that open door. I will take care of your enemies. And then further in verses 9, uh, 10 and 11, he promised to deliver them from uh, the hour of trial that would come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And I want you to notice that, that hour of trial 
So it is, uh, it is the trial. So somehow it is a unique trial in human history. It shall come. This trial is yet future. It lies on the other side of the church age. The hour of trial, in other words, it's, it is limited in its duration. Uh, the whole world, this trial is going to encompass the entire world. And its purpose is to test not Christians, but those who dwell on the earth, the unsaved. And Jesus clearly differentiates what this trial is for from, from Christians here. And all of this that he's describing here, of this great trial, uh, describes what we know as the seven-year tribulation period uh, that is described in detail in Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19, as we'll be coming to in uh, the coming weeks. And I want you to notice that Jesus promises this church, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. And that word from is worth circling in your Bible if you're a circler in your Bible. Because it is a very, very strong uh, verse for uh, what is known as a pre-tribulation rapture, the rapture of the church prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. We'll examine more of that when we get into uh, chapter 4. But notice that it doesn't say, I will keep you through the hour of trial. But Jesus said, I will keep you out of the hour of trial. I read a lot of commentaries. And I read a lot of books, and I read a lot of commentaries and different things by people that I disagree with on certain issues, but I agree with on other issues. And I mean, if, if we're only going to learn from people that we agree with 100% on every subject, we're going to close ourselves off to our, our own self uh, in a closet somewhere. So, uh, you know, this is the, the beauty of the body of Christ, the diversity of things. But there is a, uh, for the, for the post-tribulation rap, uh, rapturist, where the belief that this happens at the end of the, the tribulation period, what Jesus is talking about here, um, continually one after the other after the other spoke of the fact that that word uh, from can just as easily be translated in the Greek uh, uh, through. The problem is, is it can't. It just simply cannot. It means from, it means out of, and that is all that it means. And so how wonderful is this promise or encouragement that Jesus gives to the church of Philadelphia here. And anyone that is familiar with what happens in uh, chapters not, 6 through uh, 19 of the Revelation can, uh, uh, can testify uh, to the, the power of, of this promise. So it, it speaks of the fact that he's encouraging as members of the Church of Philadelphia not to be looking to the fact that they're going to go through, uh, looking forward to the tribulation period. That could con hardly constitute an encouragement from Jesus, but we're to look ahead to the rapture of the church when, uh, after which literally all hell breaks loose. You, people think the world is awful now. You, well, we'll see as we go, go through it. Not rubbing our hands with glee or anything like that, but it's, it, it, it's mortifying. And, uh, and the, uh, the rapture to deliver us from that period of God's wrath being poured out upon the world. I have a twin brother. He's uh, just as dear as uh, can be to me. And for a number of years, we've had breakfast once a week, uh, most weeks. Uh, and uh, it's one of the highlights uh, of, of my week. I love him so much. And there's a restaurant that we go to and and uh, so a couple of weeks ago before we went to Dallas, I was uh, parked there and uh, there was a, 
uh, a Toyota uh, Land Rover, whatever the kind of whatever their deal is. This thing was just beat to death. I mean, he was. He wasn't waxing that thing and keeping it all shiny for highway driving. He took that thing out there under the wilderness or whatever. So he pulls up and he pulls up right in front of me and then he piles out and he looks just like his vehicle. I mean, he's just, just one of these guys. And, and uh, so then I looked down, he only had one bumper sticker on his entire vehicle there. And it's like, okay, he's a man of few words and he's got it all narrowed down to one bumper sticker and the bumper sticker said, visualize catastrophe. And uh, so instead of world peace or world peas, uh, this guy has a little different outlook upon life and the catastrophe uh, is coming. And one day, is, uh, he speaks to them one day to the Church of Philadelphia to receive a crown. Not talking about salvation, that can't be taken away from us. But here it talks about the crown that we will receive for Christian, our faithfulness to our Christian service. Faithfulness for representing God properly uh, in, in the world. And so he's saying, don't let anybody from the church of Thyatira or the church of Pergamos pull you into their trip so you then lose your crown of, uh, of, of reward. And so, uh, very importantly, he tells them, hold fast to that. He reminds them of his soon return, the rapture of the church. A, a looking forward to the coming of the Lord is a characteristic uh, of, uh, of the church of Philadelphia. And then his promise, finally, to overcomers in verse 12, I will make him a pillar to the temple of my God. And the pillar, of course, uh, speaks of uh, stability. It speaks of uh, permanence. When you go into, uh, maybe if you travel around the world and you go to these different ruins from the time of Greece or Rome or whatever, if anything's still standing uh, related to a ruin or a city, what is still standing? A pillar. A pillar. It is, it is the most stable part of, uh, of, of the structures. And when everything else is gone and lying in a heap, the pillars still stand there. And Jesus is saying that this church will have a permanent, immovable place in the presence of God in heaven. And of course, uh, heaven is represented by uh, the temple, the temple that the Jews built, the tabernacle that they built. It was a small model of, of the heavenly uh, uh, scene. Philadelphia was an earthquake country, bad earthquake country, and uh, nothing in the city could be considered to be stable uh, or immovable uh, or sure, but heaven, Jesus says, is sure for us and uh, stable and safe. He said, he shall go out no more. When these great earthquakes would hit Philadelphia, everybody would run out of these stone buildings, out in the countryside, stay there until the aftershocks were over, and then go back into the city. So their motion was one of into the city, out of the city, into the city, out of the city. And Jesus said, in heaven, there's not going to be any fear for our safety. We'll be safe and secure there. Uh, no need to, to leave. And Jesus said that uh, concerning the church of Philadelphia, that he will write on him the name of God and the name of New Jerusalem. Well, in ancient times, to write your name on something uh, was a, a mark of ownership. You don't write your name on what doesn't belong to you unless you want to get punched in the nose. And so this is Jesus' way uh, of, of saying that uh, it, it, in, in heaven is going to be abundantly clear that we belong to him. 
and, and that uh, will be forever identified with him. And so he closes with an exhortation to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches in verse 13. And so this is why every church in the world should, or every church in the world, ourselves included, uh, wants to be a church of Philadelphia, wants to be a faithful uh, church, a faithful Christian. And here we're given the characteristics of that kind of church or that kind uh, of Christian that is given this promise of an open door. We have the characteristics of one who belongs to the Church of Philadelphia. Let me just read through them once again. Not in order to be needlessly repetitious, but just to allow them to check our lives. The characteristics of a a, a member of the Church of of Philadelphia or a, a Church of Philadelphia is they have a love for holiness. They have a love for the truth. They don't deny Jesus' name. They obey His command to persevere. They have a little strength, but they have great promises from a, a great God. They have a concern for the world. They want to make the gospel known. They want to be in, spiritually influential in the world that they live in. They live in the expectation of Jesus' return. They have a focus on eternity. They have the promise of future crown and reward, and they have promise of an unshakable eternal future with the Lord. Okay, so I read those, and we listen to those things, and we think to ourselves, that sounds just like plain old vanilla Christianity. Where are the fog machines? When does the pastor get on his Harley and ride down the center aisle to deliver his sermon in order to get the attention of the world or be influential in the world? Where is all of that? And there's none of that here. And I guess you'd have to be a pastor to know how much pressure there is and how much is always in the air telling us what we need to become in order to reach the world today. And they never quote the Church of Philadelphia. And they never talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all of these clever things. And God save us and protect us from clever people within the body of Christ. What Jesus wants is so simple and so powerful because Christianity is a very simple thing and a very simple life and a very, very powerful life if we would just live it and represent it as a church, like the Church of Philadelphia, and then trust God to make much of it in the world around us. And He will do that. One of the beautiful things about the Church of Philadelphia is that when we read all of those things, not one of those things lies beyond the reach of any church. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have power. You don't have to have a benefactor. You don't have to have anything. And there's not one thing that is in this list that lies beyond the reach of any individual Christian being a part of the Church of Philadelphia, even if they don't attend 
a church that is the Church of Philadelphia. And it's so simple and it's so uncomplicated and we're so prone to making the uncomplicated complicated when God makes it so simple so that the power of God can be on it and He can receive the glory. So the letter is so encouraging to all of us who we would like Philadelphia just look and say, small of stature, overlooked all the time. What difference is my life making? What difference is this church making in the grand scheme of things? That's not our problem. Our problem is to just simply be what Christianity is described in the Scriptures and then let God make it powerful as we take it out into the world that is all around us. A tremendous, tremendous encouragement to us in, in our lives. It's an exemplary church. It's a model church. But it provides us with a model that all of us can attain to. The grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a great, great life. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, you see our lives and you see for us as Americans, we're fixers, we're doers, we're improvers, and we're always looking for the next thing and all these things that are so dominant within our culture. And we thank you for reminders like this of just how simple this life is and if a church will simply be this and if we will individually just be this, you will open a door to us that doesn't get open to anyone else and you will make it influential for your purposes and for your glory. We pray that you would breathe great hope and encouragement into all of our hearts related to that. We don't say that we are a part of the Church of Philadelphia, but we endeavor to be, we want to be, Lord, and we thank you for this model church that you included in the seven. We've gone through these different churches that have been so exhortive and so many hard things you had to say uh, to them. And we are glad for what we learned there. But we're glad for the encouragement that we find here in this letter to this church. And we embrace it, Lord. Protect us from all of the things that would move us from just this kind of simplicity and just the power that rests upon it. Just knowing you, walking with you, obeying you, and then the kingdom of God being manifest in the world as we do so. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.